You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Today we're finishing the series on the book of Philippians called Joy for Every Situation. And I hope you realize by now, uh, this is week six in the series, that joy is not just an add-on. It's not just a, um, a supplement. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not the cherry on top of the sundae. Joy is vital. Joy is so important because joy is not about just the present. It's really about the certainty of the future that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's why we have joy. Joy is God's invitation into the future God has for you. And um, it's not based on your achievement. It's not based even on your situation. It can be in any situation as a result of the certain future that God has for you in Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul says so profoundly and simply that in this passage, he just says, rejoice in the Lord always. Very simple, very straightforward. And yet we could probably take that and run a whole sermon just on those uh, words. Rejoice in the Lord always. We're going to read a little more. We're in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern, for, have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't know if you realize what a contrast this letter of uh, Philippians is to the Mediterranean world and culture of its time. Uh, Gregory Bloomquist, in his scholarly work, remarks this. He says, Mediterranean antiquity was marked by a profound pessimism concerning life. We should not be surprised that in antiquity, joy is rarely mentioned except as an illusion. Did you hear that? It's an illusion for most people. They think it's not real. It's just a flight, a fancy. This is true for the philosopher and the elites. It's much more so for the vast populace that had no opportunity for philosophical or scientific reflection. They knew in their experience of life that their religion was a religion of festival, that an ethical component that aroused anxieties it could not allay because it was not a soteriological religion that could reassure the faithful by organizing their lives in this world on the pretext of securing salvation in the next. Okay, scholarly, right? So what in the world is he saying? He said religion in ancient Rome was an escape. 
It was a momentary, let's just celebrate, party a little at the temple, get away from things. But they knew that it wouldn't change anything in their daily life, nor especially their future. There was no joy. Joy was an illusion. So what did they do? They uh, attempted to find happiness in momentary things. Because there was no direction, there was no day that God was bringing forward into their lives, no promises from a God who cared about them. I get the feeling, don't you, that we're kind of back in that day and age? It may be the 21st, but it feels like the first century in the Mediterranean world. There is a profound pessimism throughout our society. I've been seeing this recently in the last decade or so, maybe exacerbated by both our politics and the pandemic itself, and yet few people, regardless, see their future much brighter than their past or their present. We're kind of like, yeah, we're just getting by. And our religion, that a lot of people, if you want to call it religion, is amusement. It's just escapism. It's doing things to take our mind off of reality. Today, though, we're going to learn that Paul talks about joy in the most real, vibrant sense possible, in the reality of his life, which was not easy, and how that joy in chapter 4 here is going to show us that it will reduce anxiety, it brings contentment, and it centers on goodness. And in those ways, you've got something, such a contrast from right now, the culture that is around you. First of all, joy actually reduces anxiety. Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, what's fascinating is that Greek word there for anxiety or anxiousness is miramnao. And when you look at the derivative, it means to be drawn apart, to be kind of split up. It means to basically be falling apart or falling to pieces. <laughs> Haven't you ever felt that way, where it's like you're being torn apart, things are going in all different directions? That's what anxiety is all about. And instead, Paul says, you can see how it all is coming together. Now, my intuition is that you're probably a little like me in the last five years or so. I don't know if it started with um, Irma or the pandemic or exactly what, but my anxiety levels have been higher than ever, you know? And um, our whole American culture feels like it's being uh, split up into pieces, going to pieces. Um, there is no... Um, sense of consensus anymore. We don't have a moral standard that everybody agrees to. The economy, the whole world order, few things like they're coming together. Everything seems like it's just falling apart. When Paul wrote, it felt much the same way around him. And think about this. Paul was not writing from some Mediterranean resort, sipping on some little drink on a chase lounge next to the sea. He was writing these words from a Roman prison where he was left unfed unless people came to feed him, friends and others, and where he had no 
hygiene of any type available to him. This was not an easy time by any means, and yet he still says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he could say that because he also said, the Lord is at hand. Very simple and to the point. He basically says, even when he's in prison, when things seem to be falling apart, it's Jesus who is holding it all together, including him. Jesus was his present and his future because he could base that on what God did for him through the past crucifixion and resurrection. And so when you find yourself, like me, anxious these days, ask maybe a question. Pause for a moment and say, who's trying to pull everything together? How am I trying to pull it all together? Am I holding my life together or am I being held together? Because the reality is, you're being held. God is holding on to you, Paul would say. And you can lift up all your anxieties to the Lord, and God's peace will be yours because he is bringing you together. He's going to make it all work out, as uh, James said so well in the prayers as well as the songs. God is working all things together for good. Or as Peter would say in his letter, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You have a God who is fully human in Jesus Christ, who knows firsthand anxiety. Do you realize? What do you think those uh, bloody, sweaty drops were in the Garden of Gethsemane, but anxiety off the chain? Or the cry from the cross itself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me except anxiety overcoming Jesus? And you have a Savior who is right there. The Lord is at hand, right with you through it all. Now, I say um, joy reduces anxiety. I don't say it eliminates it. Sorry. You're still going to have some anxiety, but you know where it belongs. You know who can handle it, who has handled it, who's taking care of it. And so you can have what I would say is some buoyancy in life. Do you know how? Uh, something floats. The storm might be there, but it still is floating on top of the water. Joy brings buoyancy even in the midst of a rough seas. So Paul had some buoyancy. He wouldn't sink even though so many things were going, quote, wrong around him. He writes in his second letter to the Corinthians this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show you that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So that uplift, that buoyancy comes from the focus that no matter what I'm going through, Jesus is right there with me, he has taken me through it. He's gone through it himself. And I have a future, certain and secure. We do live, as uh, Charles Taylor talks in his book, he, it's titled This Secular Age. We live in a secular age. Do you know where the word secular comes from? It comes from the Latin word seculum. And seculum actually means um, kind of the cycle now. It's nowism. It's the fact that it's just now. All I've got is now. Tomorrow's the same. 
Yesterday's the same. It keeps happening the same. It just goes and repeat, rinse and repeat. We keep going around in the circle. And people in our secular age are living just for today. They have no future before them that's certain and secure. And therefore, joy is missing. And anxiety goes up. If all I got is now, boy, it's not enough. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the contrast between world and church in this regard is stark. American culture is doing its dead-level best with its celebrities, consumerism, and violence to keep us in a perpetually arrested state of adolescence. Yet all the while, the church is quietly and without fault advertising, immersing us in the conditions of becoming mature to the measure of the full stature of Christ. You've got a direction. You've got a purpose. God has a goal for you. He sees you in Christ being full and complete, mature, and therefore, and he's holding on to you. That what he has begun in you, as he says at the beginning of this letter in Philippians, what he began, his good work in you, he's going to bring about to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So joy reduces anxiety because you've got a future that's secure. And joy brings contentment, our second point. Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So the word for content here is actually a, a, an important Greek word. It's called autarkeia. Arche means rule and auto. Auto means self. It's basically self-sufficiency, independence, rule. And in the Greek world, it was the number one value, the virtue they all wanted. I'm independent. I can do what I want. I don't need anybody. And hmm, Paul's saying he's content. He's using this word, but in a different way. Because Paul understands, I think the reality is, is anybody really independent of everybody else? Is anybody truly self-contained and needs no one and nothing? Have you ever tried to do that? I mean, our technology is pushing in that direction. We're always trying to have, I mean, now you can basically get Google to answer any of your questions so you don't have to ask anyone. Just ask Google, and Siri will help you with all sorts of things. And we are in front of screens time and again, on our own, isolated. And the loneliness and the anxiety and the depression have gone through the roof. But we feel self-contained. Contentment for Paul is not the fact that he, in fact, Contentment, he says, that version of contentment is exactly the temptation that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. They were trying to gain their own self-sufficiency. And that's really what's behind um, the fall. Contentment for Paul is knowing that we are ever dependent, but we're in a position of receiving from a God, that we are right related to a God who's not a bystander in your life, but one who is actively involved, who loves you so much, who is willing to do anything for you, who has given his very own son that he did not even spare him, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us everything that's good? So that's contentment. Contentment is the fact that you don't, well, you don't, um, it's not that you don't need anything. Is you don't have a situation in which God is not there with you. In um, the last moments of Martin Luther's life, 500-ish years ago, um, he was asked by a dear friend of his on his deathbed, Justice Jonas asked him, do you want to, be di to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? And Martin Luther answered it this way. He said, we are beggars. That is true. Yes. He would stand firm on that. And you might go like, we are beggars. That sounds an awful, like, almost despair, like, but not for Luther. Luther understood that was the position to be in with a God who is so gracious and giving. There's no better position to be in than to be dependent on a God who wants to give and to love and to forgive and graces every day with his presence. In fact, Luther said earlier in his life, I have held many things in my hands and have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. That's contentment. That you know your life is placed in God's hands, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, who has done everything for you. It's not independence. It's not got enough stuff so I don't have to worry about anything. It's I have a God who's greater than any situation, and that I can rely on him. So joy reduces anxiety because it gives you that buoyancy to see the future God has for you, and it brings contentment, and finally, it focuses on goodness. Paul says, you don't need to know. Well, he says, what you need is how to think more than all the information that you have. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You have more than enough knowledge that you will ever need. You have more information thrown at you than you can ever handle. What you need, though, is a focus. What you need is to know how to think about all this stuff. And that's kind of the question. What are you putting all your time into? Paul would say, think about these things, those that are honorable and true and pure and lovely. So if you're um, a Christian who is spending maybe, let's say, 20 minutes both reading scripture and in prayer a day, you're probably way ahead of the curve of the majority. And yet, even with 20 minutes a day, I'm wondering how many hours that you're spending scrolling or listening to people who are not focused on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, but on things like resentment and <laughs> judgment against others and tribalism and divisions. How much time is spent on all of those things instead and you wonder why our lives are filled with worry and anger and bitterness? 
Maybe because we're not focused on what is true and honorable and just and pure. And it's not just anything. It's someone. If you read through these words, who is honorable? Who is true? Who is the just one? Who is the pure one? Who's the one that is so lovely and commendable? It's focusing on Jesus. Jesus is that one. As I mentioned this passage before, Paul says it again. He says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, you have a God in Jesus Christ who held nothing back. And it wasn't easy for him to give it all away. He gave an entire life away into death so that you could have his life. He took our sin to give us his righteousness. He took our fear to give us his confidence. He took our hopelessness to give us a future with him. So as we come to the end of this series, Joy for Every Situation, I want you to specifically know that you've got a joy in Jesus Christ, a future that is so certain and so true that nothing can take that away from you. You've got a God who has done it all for you and who will never let go. In all these chaotic times and all this time of pessimism in our society, all it does to me is show even more why Jesus came, what he was about, and why we can have joy in every situation. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you this day. Um, I thank you for this letter that Paul wrote from prison to a small church like us in the midst of a very um, pessimistic culture. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, well, we know what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray now that you would open our eyes to see it more clearly so that we can truly uh, show your love to others and live in a joy of the certain future that we have because of what you've done, Jesus. I pray that Thrive would be a community of joy where we celebrate with one another, encourage one another, speak the truth with one another, and love one another, Lord, that we focus on what is true and honorable and pure and lovely, and that we, Lord, would share that with this world. Um, the contrast is strong. Paul talked about that earlier, of how we are to shine like stars in a dark sky. And we pray that your church would do that both here in Southwest Florida and throughout this world. We need you, Jesus, to be working through us for the sake of your kingdom. May your will be done and your kingdom come through us to others, that they too might have the joy that is available to them as they trust you. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.